You are listening to the sermon podcast of Connection Church, a gospel-centered community on a mission to make much of Jesus in Sioux Falls, South Dakota. For more information, visit SiouxFallsConnection.com. Thank you for listening. Our hope is this fall, as we're walking through the book of Judges, to begin to connect the dots, not only backward how the book of Judges, the seventh book of the Bible, is a, is a story of how the second generation that was delivered from Egypt in Exodus and settled in the book of Joshua, the book immediately preceding this, begins to settle in the land run by people who worshipped idols. And it also looks forward to a king that will be on the way. And so the very last verse of the book of Judges in the very last chapter says this, in those days there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. And so up to this point, God has delivered on his promise to set them free and give them a land of their own to live in a way that's distinct from the people around them. But the book of Judges up to this point has been a downward spiral to where the people do whatever they want and until the final climax of the book that we're now almost two-thirds of the way through at the very last verse is that people just did whatever they wanted. And the case that the book of Judges is making is that apart from God's king, apart from God's coming king and leader and ruler, we do whatever we want. And in a culture currently that prides itself quite literally on, on autonomy and self-rule, and self-discovery, and self-assertion, the book of Judges, some centuries ago, begins to make an argument that whenever we do that, death and destruction always is the result. And apart from God's King, and looking to His delivering and saving work, we're lost in a spiral that will destroy not only ourselves, but the people around us. And so we are introduced to the last, the twelfth of the Judges this morning. We are introduced to Samson. Now this is also what I would say is like the last set of three. So we've seen that there are six what we'll call minor judges up to this point. That is, they're they're not minor in their significance, but they're just not devoted very much ink. They're not given... Uh, We're not given a whole lot about them. In fact, we're meant to be invited to consider that God leads and delivers in ordinary ways, in ways that are not spectacular but quite common. And half the judges... Are like that. But then there are six other major judges. The first three seem to be kind of the most noble. You remember Othniel, Ehud, and Shamgar. Uh, and, and, then you, and then we're introduced to, in more detail, Deborah. But then the last set of three, as we'll call it, are Gideon, Jephthah, and now Samson. And this last set of three major judges are a mess. They're a mess, and it gets worse and worse, such that not only are the people getting less and less repentant, they feel less and less badly about doing whatever they want, but in fact, their enemies are even getting stronger and stronger, to the point where this Judge Samson also introduces us to an enemy that will plague and oppress God's people for the next several books of the Bible. And so... We're going to read the very first chapter in this multi-chapter episode of the last of the judges in this downward spiral of people doing whatever they want, beginning in verse 1 of chapter 13. And then toward the end of our time together, I want you to see, as we've been walking this fall through this, how this story of Samson echoes very much the story of the coming of Jesus we celebrate this time of year. Beginning in verse 1 of chapter 13. 
And the people of Israel again did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. So the Lord gave them into the hand of the Philistines for 40 years. There was a certain man of Zorah, of the tribes of the Danites, whose name was Manoah. And his wife was barren and had no children. And the angel of the Lord appeared to the woman and said to her, Behold, you are barren, have not born children. But you shall conceive and bear a son. Therefore, be careful and drink no wine or strong drink and eat nothing unclean. For behold, you shall conceive and bear a son. No razor shall come upon his head, for the child shall be a Nazarite to God from the womb. And he shall begin to save Israel from the hand of the Philistines. Then the woman came and told her husband, A man of God came to me, and his appearance was like the appearance of the angel of God. Very awesome. I did not ask him where he was from, but he did not tell me, and he did not tell me his name. But he said to me, Behold, you shall conceive and bear a son. So then drink no wine or strong drink, and eat nothing unclean, for the child shall be a Nazarite to God from the womb to the day of his death. Then Manoah prayed to the Lord and said, O Lord, please let the man of God whom you sent come again to us and teach us what we are to do with the child who will be born. And God listened to the voice of Manoah. And the angel of God came again to the woman as she sat in the field. But Manoah, her husband, was not with her. So the woman ran quickly and told her husband, Behold, the man who came to me the other day has appeared to me. And Manoah arose and went after his wife and came to the man and said to him, Are you the man who spoke to this woman? And he said, I am. And Manoah said, Now, when your words come true, what is to be the child's manner of life? And what is his mission? And the angel of the Lord said to Manoah, Of all that I said to the woman, let her be careful. She may not eat of anything that comes from the vine, neither let her drink wine or strong drink or eat anything un, un, any unclean thing. All that I commanded her, let her observe. Manoah said to the angel of the Lord, Please let us detain you and prepare a young goat for you. And the angel of the Lord said to Manoah, If you detain me, I will not eat your food. But if you prepare a burnt offering, then offer it to the Lord. For Manoah did not know that he was the angel of the Lord. And Manoah said to the angel of the Lord, What is your name so that when your words come true, we may honor you? And the angel of the Lord said to him, Why do you ask my name, seeing it is wonderful? So Manoah took the young goat with the grain offering and offered it on the rock to the Lord, to the one who works wonders. And Manoah and his wife were watching. And when the flame went up toward heaven from the altar, the angel of the Lord went up in the flame of the altar. Now Manoah and his wife were watching, and they fell on their faces to the ground. The angel of the Lord appeared no more to Manoah and to his wife. Then Manoah knew that he was the angel of the Lord. And Manoah said to his wife, We shall surely die, for we have seen God. But his wife said to him, If the Lord had meant to kill us, he would not have accepted a burnt offering and a grain offering at our hands, or shown us all these things, or now announced to us such things as these. And the woman bore a son, 
and called his name Samson. And the young man grew, and the Lord blessed him. And the Spirit of the Lord began to stir him in Mahanadan between Zorah and Eshtaol. We believe that this is God's Word. And my prayer is that it becomes more than just ink on a page, but it becomes the very voice of God to the people of God today. Here we are again in the cycle of the judges. If you've been with us for the last several weeks and even a couple of months, the very first verse here will be no shock to you. And again, the people did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. The author of Judges doesn't say, now, now, now stop me if you've heard this before, but instead he says, again, the people did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. And yet again, the people of God would be as unsuccessful as ever as coping with the challenge of living amongst the people who worship idols. Now we got a preview of this up to this point. We got a preview of this rising enemy we were introduced to in this chapter, that is the Philistines. One of the first of the judges we were introduced to all the way back in chapter 3. And he was so amazing, he got one verse. But in that one verse, we're given a, a powerful picture of what Samson would look like and what the enemy of God's people would grow to become. Verse 31 in chapter 3, after him was Shamgar, the son of Anath, who killed 600 of the Philistines with an ox goad. And he also saved Israel. And that's it. That's all we hear about Shamgar. And evidently this strong and mighty man, we don't know if he did it. We don't know if he did it like covertly, one at a time with this ox goad that was probably a, a spear with a, or it's a long spear with a hook on the end of it, maybe six to ten feet long. We don't know if he, if he did it from a distance, after all, with a long stick. Or we don't know if he like, you know, did it covertly or if he just lined them up and maybe like the, the legend of Leonidas just wiped out the enemy as they pile into a corridor. But we were introduced way back in chapter 3 that this is no minor story. In fact, he's the first one to hold the Philistines at bay. It was a preview of the rise of a great foe. The greatest foe that God's people had faced up to this point in the Bible. And yet it was Shamgar. With an unexpected and unlikely weapon in the hands of a, albeit ironic, Savior that delivered God's people from their greatest enemy. And he did it personally. Not with an army, but face-to-face, -face, getting his own hands dirty. And you'll remember in chapter 10, we were given the preview of the next two stories. That would be the, the judge Jephthah, and then now we come to the judge Samson. Verse 6, the people of Israel again did what was evil in the sight of the Lord and served the Baals and the Ashtaroth, the gods of Syria, the gods of Sidon, the gods of Moab, the gods of the Ammonites, and the gods of the Philistines. In addition to Baal and Ashtaroth, that's seven. Remember, that's, a, that's remembered to be a pattern or number of completion in the Old Testament. Like You're meant to see like, oh, they worshipped everything. Completely gave themselves over to these things. And the gods of the Ammonites we saw, and then the gods of the Philistines. And they forsook the Lord and did not serve Him. So the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel, and He sold them into the hands of the 
Philistines and in the hands of the Ammonites. Now, the, the story, the, the episode we wrapped up last week was the story, the episode of the, or excuse me, the Judge Jephthah. And he dealt with which of these? The Ammonites. And so then we see the former is going to be the topic of discussion for the rest of the book of Judges. The rest of the book of Judges. And this episode that was addressed through Jephthah to the Ammonites is now going to be picked up by this new judge we're introduced to, Samson. But Samson has the echoes and uh, similarities to the calling of previous judges so that you'll know that God's doing something. Did you hear that? There, just like the Gideon story, there's an angel and a burning sacrifice. Remember that? We'll see later. There's also 300 figures with torches. And just like the Deborah story, we'll see another dangerous woman with a peg with the intent to kill. And just like Shamgar, the story has a judge noted for killing Philistines personally with odd weapons. Like Othniel, this judge happens to end up having a wife that plays an important role. But that's just a setup. That all sounds like the pattern that you've heard before, but it's just simply to lull you into seeing the ironic differences that we see here. This is the finale of the dark season of the last three judges. The noble judges are long gone. And you're meant to, across the span of the last few chapters, wonder, how did we get from there to here? Have you ever wondered that? Maybe you're wondering that now. Do you find yourself looking back and Remembering a time that seemed like you were much more innocent? Are there seasons you can look back upon even recently where you did things that if someone would have warned you about that 10 years ago, you wouldn't have believed them? I'm No way am I capable of that. And you look back to a more innocent time. You had fewer scars then. And the things you've done since then, you would have never thought you were capable of doing. The book of Judges is for you. Unless, of course, you look back to your, the, the version of yourself ten years ago and think that you were in quite, quite possibly a genius and an expert. The rest of us are invited to identify with what is a story of deterioration. Now look, do you remember the, the cycle that would happen? Do you remember the cycle? I gave you some, even, uh, even some, some onomatopoeias to, to remember the, the cycle of sin, of servitude, of supplication, and of salvation. The people would rebel against God. They'd be disobedient, but then they'd be disciplined by God, and their discipline would become, they would become desperate and cry out to God, but then God would raise up a Savior and deliver them. They would experience a season of rebellion and then, then feel God's wrathful retribution and then go through a season of repentance and then experience God's rescue. Now in that cycle, did you catch which one of those ingredients is missing here in verse 1? And the people of Israel did again what was evil in the sight of the Lord. Well, that's the sound of rebellion, of sin, of disobedience. So the Lord gave them into the hand of the Philistines for 40 years. That's the sound of, of servitude or discipline or the wrath or retribution of God, the just punishment for rebelling against Him. 
But then in verse 2, we find the introduction to what? The Savior. There was a certain man of Zorah, apparently the father of the next Savior, that is Samson. Did you catch what was missing completely? There was no desperate supplication. There was no repentance. And we're invited to see the grace of God in the Old Testament in a powerful way. Don't let anyone fool you and try to think that the Old Testament is about some sort of some wrathful God, and the New Testament is some gracious and kind God. It's not true at all. I want you to see the gracious work of God from the beginning, and you see it here with the missing piece of the cycle. You see, God sends someone to save those who do not even want to be saved. There's a cycle that has been happening up to this point, and we're meant to be lulled into it, right? Oh, I know how this goes. The people rebel, and then God punishes them, and then in their punishment, they feel remorse, and they repent, even half-heartedly. But we saw there's a trajectory that's happening in two simultaneous directions. One is a trajectory of the, the repentance becomes less and less Less and less heartfelt and more and more superficial. Even to the point where now, did you catch it? It's gone entirely. They don't cry out to God. They are comfortable. And the first thing you see here is that we tend toward unrepentance. We get hardened by sin. And then we become oblivious to it. I pointed this out a few chapters ago, but our capacity for self-deception is uncanny. We can be in the mess of this, and unless we invite others to be messengers of God's Word, as we see here, to speak into those patterns in our own lives, we will be quite content to trust in lesser things. But notice God's grace. God sends a Savior to people who don't even want to be saved. They're content with the Philistines and the gods of the Philistines. They're happy with it. And so the downward trajectory of turning from God is, is utterly complete. We saw that with the Jephthah before acting just like a Canaanite, but then we see it here. We see this, this sense in which they don't even feel bad. They'd rather make deals with the Philistines. And God sends someone to save people who don't even want to be saved. The New Testament says it this way, that at one time for us who call ourselves believers, the gospel was foolishness. It was folly. It was ridiculous. That's powerful. That's a grace that's pretty amazing. Now, don't miss that. If you're here this morning because it's your idea, well, that's great until you have another idea. But if you're here this morning because it's God's idea to draw sinful people to Him, well then, the only thing to do next is to ask yourself, do I believe this? Will I trust this God and obey Him? God sends a Savior to redeem the unrepentant, but then He gives grand signals to pave the way so that we won't miss it. Did you see what happens? They're turned over to the Philistines. Remember I told you there were simultaneous trajectories? One of them is the people of God become less and less repentant, more and more hardened, more and more comfortable with the idols of their surrounding culture. But at the same time, the enemies that oppress God's people get stronger and stronger. And so we're going to be introduced to the Philistines where apparently they're under their hand for 40 years. But we're invited to look far ahead, far ahead 
Because these Philistines won't be destroyed until the book of 2 Samuel. And you know who will deliver them? The king in Israel. God's anointed king, that is David. So get this, there's a Nazarite born of miraculous and powerful birth to people who wouldn't have expected it so that they will prepare, he will prepare the people of Israel for the coming Savior King that is David. And so you're looking back to Gideon and the way that he was called, but what we'll find here is that the trajectory of God's people's greatest enemy getting stronger and stronger will be even greater than Samson can deal with. And so at the beginning of the chapter, you see people doing evil, being oppressed. The cycle is clear, just like we saw in chapter 3, 4, 6, and 10. But they don't cry out. All the way to the end of the chapter, what seems to be the transition to the next chapter? A son is born, anointed by the Spirit of God. And in the middle, how do we get from there? God sends a Savior to deliver people who don't even want it. Don't miss the grace of God that calls to us while we are dead in our trespasses. It's while we were the enemy of God. This is important. In a, you may be in this room and like a good upper Midwesterner, you might call yourself a Christian, but deep down you really believe that God saved you because of something you did. Deep down, you thought, I've cleaned myself up. I prayed the prayer rightly. I, I went through the right rituals. I repented in the right way. Don't miss this. The only thing you brought to the table of God's story of salvation is death and sin. That's it. God brings all the, the abundance of redemption. He gives, all the, excuse me, he gives all the forgiveness and He brings all the life. And that's a good thing. Because if you're a self-righteous, religious, pharisaical, upper Midwesterner, let's be honest, who calls yourself a Christian, this is provocative, isn't it? What do you mean? What do you mean to tell me I'm sinful? I'm not, have you seen other people? And this is intentionally provocative. You're a mess. You're a wreck. You can do nothing to save yourself. And if you are a, a happy religious Pharisee, that will make you rightly angry. And I want to invite you. Good. Now you're getting it. Now you're getting it. But for the rest of us who have been saved by God's grace, by some miraculous means that we can't even explain, we are filled with gratitude. Because if it was God's idea to save me, then I can't mess Him up. If it was God's intention to save His people even when they were unrepentant, then no matter of half-hearted repentance will stop Him. And so for some of us, that's deeply provocative. If we think we're here because of our own Good, I, like, I, if you think you're smart enough to have thought to follow and trust Jesus for salvation. But the rest of us, we look back and realize that the gospel is foolishness. And if God had not made us alive, sent His Son to take our place even before we knew what that was, then we have deep comfort, don't we? And we read those first few verses and we're like, yeah, God saved a bunch of people and they didn't even cry out for help. Yeah. Remember what that was like for you? Remember what that was like? Now, this is good for us in the 21st century. How many of the sins have you committed since 
the Son of God died to take your place and pay for them. And for us, it's all of them. It's all of them. And then we're introduced to the birth narrative. This miraculous birth narrative of a Savior that's going to come to deliver people that don't even want it. So there's a certain man of Zorah. This language we'll see elsewhere. And the angel of the Lord appeared to the woman and said to her, Behold, you are barren and have not born children. Now this is powerful for us. The first thing that God's messenger comes is points out a deep cause for sorrow. And friend, I want you to be encouraged by it. The Lord is not aware of our longing, not unaware of our longings. The Lord knew what they were praying for. The Lord knew that this was evidently a cause of deep pain. And friend, I get to encourage you, the Lord is not unaware of your deep pain. And I know that seems like a far-fetched, unbelievable thing to, con- to consider. You're telling me the God of the universe who created all things cares about me? Did you catch the irony in this? We don't even get her name. We just get Manoah and Manoah's wife. And yet the angel came to who? The anonymous. The unnamed. And it was to the unnamed that what, what was it? God comes to be present with a message of hope. And the first thing he does is points out, look, I know you are not You are barren. You are unable to have children. You have not had any children. But! And we might be tempted to think that God is some stranger up there and out there, but friend, this is a season above all other seasons where we were reminded that God came to be with us and for us. We are strangers to God no longer. The the Lord is not unaware of our longings. And this is a similar theme. If you were to go back to Genesis 11, to the story of Sarah... Abraham, or the story of Rebecca. These people are childless. And in this case, the irony of the story tells us she's childless and anonymous. We don't even know her name. And yet in this story, because of what God does, she is anything but obscure. She is not anonymous. She is known by God. Listen to the irony. We don't know her. Yet God knows her. I know that stories like this hit close to home for many of you in this room or many that you know. Maybe you, like Manoah and his wife, have been unable to have children up to this point. I do not know how the Lord will meet you in that. But I do know this, the Lord knows you. The Lord will not abandon you. You see, this is actually where God tends to work the most, in hopelessness and obscurity. God begins exceptional work with exceptional difficulty. He comes to a difficult circumstance where there's little hope or even little energy to bring about salvation. And yet he does so out of nothingness. He displays his power in places that we are unable to contribute anything but to God, the glory. All we can do is thank him for it. And he displays his power 
and the places where we contribute nothing so that our eyes would be lifted to Him. So that we would have no illusions about where our help is found. And the days when the Philistines, the greatest foe that the story of the Bible has ever known up to this point, what happens? God sends a messenger to visit a nameless and childless woman. Now this is where it gets interesting. We're in, for the next several verses, we're introduced to this weird relationship between Manoah and his wife. Did you catch a little bit of the, ten, the tension there? Remember what I told you, like... One of the things we want to pay attention to in the book of Judges is pay close attention to the women. Now, and all the women in the room are like, duh, but just hear me out. The women in the story of the book of Judges are indicators of what's going on. They give us a picture of, in, in a very powerful way, they indicate what's happening, right? And we saw the last chapter how bad things are to where Jephthah sacrifices his only daughter. And we're meant to, and, and again, we're meant to weep. And I share this unabashedly. It is my, in my conviction that whenever people do whatever is right in their own eyes, when people do whatever they want with whomever they want, women and children always pay the price. And I got receipts. And you're meant to, at the end of the story of Jephthah sacrificing his daughter, ladies, right? You're like, oh my goodness. And I'll give you a spoiler alert on this one where we go after judges. Like, you're, you're, you're sitting there going like, well, is there any hope? For God to use and, uh, and bless women, and I don't know if you know, you know what the very next chapter is, the very next book, it's like Ruth and Naomi are like, hi. <laughs> now I act surprised when we get there, but like that's, the women are a litmus test in the story of Judges in a powerful way. They, they profoundly point to the nature of people and the work of God. And so, to be fair, Manoah's, Manoah seems a little bit dense. And Manoah's wife, is, she seems, seems to have it together. Did you catch that? The first thing he does, verse 8, whenever Manoah hears from his wife, Lord, please, and this is what every new father has prayed, please let the man of God whom you sent come again and teach us what are we to do with this child who will be born. And for the rest of us, God has answered that prayer with a mother. I got it. Statistically, men don't actually like pass out in the, in the delivery room. That's a myth. But the fact that it's a believable myth should tell you everything you need to know. <laughs> what do we do with this baby? But listen to what happens. He cries out in doubt. And it's pretty, pretty profound. The Lord responds to his doubt. Did you hear that? And God listened in verse 9 to the voice of Manoah. And the angel of God came again, now this is funny, <laughs> to the woman as she sat in the field. But Manoah, her husband, was not with her. So, thankfully, the woman ran quickly and told her husband, right? She's like, I'm glad you're here. I'm glad you're here, but I really, you're going to need to meet my husband. Just, I'm going to need you to talk to him. So the woman goes and brings her husband, verse 11, he rose to go and to meet them. And what's the man's first, first, first thing? Are you the man? Are you the one who spoke to it? And it, this is, I heard one commentator talk about this, that like it's, it's repeated regularly that she's not meant to drink any wine or any strong drink. And after you meet Manoah, you're like, that's good because this is the kind of woman who might want a drink from time to time. 
Did you, did you catch it? Are you the man, and this is, dudes, listen to this. Are you the man who spoke to, not my wife, this woman? See what I mean? Like, no, seriously, no wine, no strong drink. Seriously, I got, I know. And he said, I am. And he says, now when the words that you've spoken come true, what's going to be the manner of life for this child? What will be his mission? And Angel just simply said, look, I already told your wife. She may not eat of anything that comes from the vine, neither let her drink wine or strong drink or eat anything unclean. All that I commanded her, let her observe. So again, he's like, just, just help her out, man. This is, you'll be fine. But then something amazing happens. He clearly doesn't get it. And we're told why. We, we come to find out parenthetically in verse 16, Manoah didn't know that he was an angel of the Lord. See what I mean? Do, 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 do you see what's going on? It's like the, the woman seems to see and understand. The man is a little bit disconnected. And he says, look, let us bring a burnt offering. And he says, look, if you, if you do that, I won't eat it. But if you prepare it, then offer it not to me, but to the Lord. And then when he burns the offering, kind of like Gideon, the angel of the Lord somehow jumps in the fire and is consumed and ascends. And then it says in verse 20, Manoah and his wife were watching and they fell on their faces to the ground. The angel of the Lord appeared no more. And then, that was when he knew. Notice this, an encounter with God always ends in fear. Now this is hearkening back to the book of Exodus, isn't it? Where Moses cried out, cried out to God, look, I want to see your glory. Show me your face. And the Lord responds, look, that's not possible. You can't do that. You caught a glimpse of it. Did you, did you see the name that he wanted? Like, to at least tell us who it is. And, and then he says, it's really weird for us because we don't use words like this, but he says, why do you want my name? Knowing that it's going to be wonderful. But, but that word most literally means like secret or mysterious. And we see this elsewhere, right? The book of Isaiah. And his name shall be called Wonderful Counsel. Like secret counselor, you don't even understand the wonder, the incredibility of this name. It also is found in Psalm 139, right? The psalmist cries out, the knowledge that you have of me and everything is too wonderful for me. And so when Moses in Exodus chapter 23 says, I want to see your face, the Lord says, I can't do that. In that sense, it's too much for you. It's beyond you. It would destroy you. So here's what I'll do. I'll hide you in a crevice in the mountain and I'll pass over you. And then once I'm past, I'll, I'll turn and awaken you, as it were, and you can see me on, as my backside is going away from you. You see it also in the calling of Isaiah. That just the train, the hem of the garment of the Lord, does what? Fills the whole temple. It's too much. Such that they knew if you were to encounter God, you'd be obliterated. Now again, did you catch it? Wife is like, okay, calm down. Again, if the Lord had meant to kill us in verse 23, he wouldn't have accepted the burnt offering or the offering, the grain offering. And he certainly would have shown this thing about us having a baby and announced it to us if he was just going to destroy us. Thank you, wife of Manoah. 
But the encounter with God stirs fear. Now, this is important for us. We regularly, we, we like to think of God as gracious, but we don't like to think of God as wrathful or something to be feared. And that's a weird word in the New Testament because one of the most common commands, or excuse me, in the, in the entirety of the Bible, one of the most common commands in the Bible is what? Fear not. And yet, on the other times, we are commanded to what? Fear the Lord. Now, obviously, there's two different kinds of fears, right? One is a fear of not trusting God, and the other is a fear of actually beginning to comprehend His holiness and His majesty. And we see here that to encounter His holiness and His majesty will always end in fear. Now, this is good for us because God is not like equal parts gracious and wrathful. He's not both angry at sin, like in some part, and yet like partly happy to save His people. He is fully completely and perfectly those things simultaneously. God is perfectly holy, perfectly just, perfectly righteous, perfectly wrathful against sin, and yet perfectly kind, perfectly slow in anger, perfectly patient, perfectly gracious. The problem is with us. We struggle, and I would say we will tend to err on one side or the other. The psalmist in the second psalm says it this way, serve the Lord, catch this, with fear And then this is the ambivalence, rejoice with trembling. Kiss the son, lest he be angry and you perish in the way. For his wrath is quickly kindled, yet blessed are all those who, what? Take refuge in him. Did you catch that? Evidently, this this messianic psalm previewing the coming of the king in the the second psalm is like, look, he's going to come and it's going to be great because he's gracious But make no mistake about it, when he comes again, he will no longer be on a donkey. He will be on a war horse. He is merciful to his people, but he is righteous and just to his enemies. He's not equal parts one or the other. He is fully and perfectly both. We struggle with this. We err on one side or the other. But look at the good news Manoah's wife shares. Do you hear it? Manoah's wife sees that they're in fact recipients of God's patience, not his punishment. And when we see his patience in the messenger and the patience of this coming Savior, we have what? Hope and wonder. As if Manoah's wife says to all of us, he's not going to destroy us. I have good news. He's going to save us. If he had meant to destroy us, trust me, it would have been done. We're easy to kill. The Bible says we're like grass. And yet, Manoah's wife says something to her husband and to us and all who read the book of Judges and the rest of the Bible. He's not going to destroy us. When he comes, he's going to save us. And then the last verse gives us a powerful picture of what is to come. Did you catch it? This young man, verse 25, will be anointed by and covered by the Spirit of God. The Spirit of God will cover him. You see, God's angel appeared in a home, in a village, you've never heard of, to announce to a couple that in that home would be born a child who would be the forerunner of the Savior King of Israel. This angel comes and says, look, 
you're going to have a baby and the Spirit will do something here. So powerful, so amazing. And this story is different than any other book of the Judges, right? This story, we're not, we're not just meant to see like, you know, a, a Savior raises up and God can put him to good use. That's not how God works. God can make a Savior from scratch. And the story, the birth narrative of Judges, is that God has been working previous. 1 Peter 1.20 says it this way, He has foreknown before the foundation of the world was made manifest in the last times for the sake of you who through Him are believers in God, who raised Him up from the dead and gave Him glory so that your faith and your hope are what? In God. So, it was foreknown before the foundation of the world that what? A Savior would be raised up for the sake of you. For your sake. The Lord doesn't just find leaders that are available. He can make a leader from scratch. But listen to how Peter explains this. This is not an accident, a plan B. And it's hard for us to fathom something like Peter says. Before the foundation of the world, something was done for your sake and for mine. God is not shocked by us. Before the foundation of the world, before the foundation of the world, He was offering us hope. He's doing something for the foundation of the world for my sake and for yours. Now do me a favor, join me, and we'll wrap up in Luke chapter 1. Now if you've got that blue Bible, it's on page 498, I believe. For the rest of us, it's the third gospel, the third book of the New Testament. Don't be afraid of the table of contents. been wanting to walk us up to this point for the last several months of this fall. And I want you to hear the echoes that Luke means for us to hear reverberating. Verse 1 of Luke chapter 1, Inasmuch as many have undertaken to compile a narrative of the things that have been accomplished among us, Luke is a physician, he's smart, he writes wicked, wicked, wicked sentences. Just as those who have from the beginning were eyewitnesses and ministers of the word have delivered them to us, it seemed good to me also, he's a skeptic, having followed all things closely for some time past, to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus, that you may have certainty concerning the things that you have been taught. Verse 5, in the days of Herod, king of Judea, there was a priest named Zechariah of the division of Abijah, and he had a wife from the daughters of Aaron, and her name was Elizabeth, and they were both righteous before God, walking blamelessly in all the commandments and statutes of the Lord, but they had no child, because Elizabeth was barren, and both were advanced in years. You hear it? You hear it? Now, this is interesting, okay? Beware in this season... Beware of all the distractions. Even the Gospels don't really freak out about the birth of Jesus. If you don't believe me, ask the Gospel of Mark and the Gospel of John. They say Christmas is a humbug, right? Don't even include it. But Matthew and Luke tell us. But notice, Luke wants us to tell us about Jesus, but what does he start with? He starts about this couple who can't have a baby. 
He starts somewhere else. And we're being introduced to this Savior King of all God's people, but where does he start? Not with some nostalgic manger scene. He starts with a couple who had no child, and they were both, the language here is polite, they were advanced in years. Now while he, that is Zechariah, was serving as priest before God when his division was on duty, according to the custom of the priesthood, he was chosen by law to enter the temple of the Lord and burn incense. And the whole multitude of the people were praying outside at the hour of incense. And there appeared to him an angel of the Lord standing on the right side of the altar of incense. And Zechariah was troubled when he saw him, and fear fell upon him. But the angel said to him, Do not be afraid, Zechariah, for your prayer has been heard, and your wife Elizabeth will bear you a son. Do you hear it? Do you hear it again? And you shall call his name John, and you will have joy and gladness, and many will rejoice at his birth, for he will be great before the Lord. And he must not drink wine or strong drink, and he will be filled with what? The Holy Spirit, even from his mother's womb. And he will turn many of the children This is powerful. He will turn many of the children of Israel to the Lord their God. And he will go before him in the spirit and power of Elijah and turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the just to do what? This is the language of Advent. To make ready for the Lord a people prepared. Now, I don't want to give away, we're going to spend the next two weeks in Luke chapter 1. I don't want to give away too much, but read verse 18 with me on the side. And Zechariah said to the angel, kind of like Manoah, how shall I know this? For I'm an old man and my wife is advanced in years. I think this is, this is, he was troubled. I think this is why Jesus appeared to the women. Because the men would have just freaked out, right? Do you see that from Manoah to Manoah's wife to Zechariah to Elizabeth, right? He, I'm troubled. And then he's like, how will I know this? And then the story, he, the angel shuts him up. Like, you're not going to talk for your, for your wife's pregnancy. And your, his wife was like, cool. <laughs> I think this is why, this, praise God for women. I think that's why Jesus appeared to the women, right? The soldiers freaked out, acted dead. But Mary walks up to Jesus and the Gospel of John is like, where'd you put his body? Just tell me and I'll go get him. Get the picture? It's, it's a, it's a, it's, I didn't, this is a theme in the Bible. It's not just me. Did you hear the reverberations? Samson was sent by God to a people to prepare them for a savior king that would come and destroy the greatest enemy they had ever known. And he was a Nazarite set aside for a special task to prepare people for a Savior King that would come. Don't miss this. God comes to an unlikely place to announce the birth of a child who would be the forerunner of the Savior King of Israel that delivers His people from their greatest enemy. Do you hear this in Luke 1? This thing we celebrate at Christmas, it's not an accident. It's no small thing. The miraculous birth of the forerunner that is John the Baptist, the forerunner of Jesus, is a signature of God's salvation. This thing in the middle of a time where everyone's doing whatever is right in their own eyes, in the chaos, is a preview of how God saves His people. 
This is no idle episode. This is a preview to a salvation so great that the Lord does not want us to miss it. So he signs it. This unexpected birth in a time of idol worship points to an unexpected birth in a time of misery. And friend, it points today where you might today by faith experience an unexpected and miraculous birth to be born again in the middle of a time of misery in a barren place to hear that you are not forgotten, not abandoned, but our Savior King is coming. You might be looking around. Can God do anything? This place is too lifeless. And yet the story of Samson tells us that one day a king is coming and he will be great and he will deal finally with the Philistines. The story of Samson tells us that one day the king is coming and he will deal with our greatest enemy. And the story of John the Baptist is the same thing. A king is coming. Prepare. Get ready. He will deal with our greatest enemies. Sin, death, hell, and the grave. The Lord met Manoah and his wife and their longing. And it was in their waiting and in their longing that the Lord showed himself in fear and in comfort. This is the story of Advent, the coming of our long-awaited king. And we are now invited to live this life in a season and posture of meaningful waiting. Let me just wrap up on that. We often think that waiting is wasted time. We often think that to wait for something is a wasted time. That's why whenever you have to wait, do you know what you do? You grab your phone. Because why, why would I waste this time waiting? But we're invited to consider that there is a posture of waiting that is a right way to be. Let me give an example. I can convince you there's meaningful waiting. I don't know how to start this or say this. I spend a lot of time outside of ladies' bathrooms. Right outside the door. A lot of time. Over the last several years, I, I spend a lot of time outside, just right outside the door of the women's bathroom. Yeah. I have, I have, a, I have a, a wife and two daughters. And so someone else might look at me and think, what's that? That's, that's weird. They might even think, I, I'm, all, I'm doing something nefarious. They might think, he's up to no good. But if you've ever met my family, you will realize my waiting has meaning. Because at some time, God help us, they're going to come out. <laughs> all at once, because they go in all at once. They tra- I don't know how you, they learn early. <laughs> and if you didn't know me, you might see me outside that door and think maybe I'm up to no good. But it's possible you would see me waiting and immediately know something about me that's one of the most important things about me. Oh, he's a loving father waiting for his daughters. Friend, waiting is not wasted time. I know you're in a hurry to get to Christmas. I know every single consumer-driven Every single consumer-driven ploy has been thrown at you such that now Christmas has swallowed not only Thanksgiving, but it's swallowed Halloween. You know who you are. 
I know you're tempted to think that that waiting is wasted time and we should get to the presence. But friend, waiting has meaning. I wait outside that bathroom because my identity is one of a loving father. It is not wasted. It is in glad anticipation of a reunion. And that's silly. That's just a silly example. And yet the most seemingly empty-handed man who waits for Christ has more than the man who has everything that he's ever wanted in his life. Waiting has meaning. And the man who waits expectantly for the coming Savior King has more than the man who has everything that he's wished for in this life. Philippians 3.20 says it this way, Our citizenship is in heaven, and from it what? We await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. And the world sees us waiting. I have to get you to see this. Apart from this, Christmas morning is going to be a waste. It's going to be an exercise in consumeristic idolatry. But friend, if I can get you to see that your waiting is not in vain, that your waiting is a meaningful posture, it could change everything. Like Zechariah, Elizabeth, like Manoah, and his anonymous wife, I know you don't have what you want right now. I know there are things you long for. I know there are things you wish and pray for. And I know you don't have them right now. I don't have them either. But this remarkable birth is a signpost that we do not wait in vain. Samson came to show these people that a king is coming that would destroy the greatest enemy they had ever known. And friend, John the Baptist was born so that we would know our king is coming and he will destroy our greatest foe. The Samson story is, is, is a powerful indicator that God has not forsaken his people, but the Savior King will come in victory. And he will slaughter that ancient enemy so that in this season we would wait, not meaninglessly, not feeling like we've wasted our time, but our waiting is a hope that is sure. Our Savior King has come and he has crushed that ancient snake with his foot. And sin, death, hell, and the grave are left in languish because of our coming King. Friend, this is a big deal. I want you to see this season in our lives is not a coincidence. It's the signature of a saving God. All the way back to Samson. Now, believe and live accordingly. Let's pray. God, thank you so much for doing things in ways that we might be able to recognize. I thank you that you're not a God who's up there and out there hiding and running from us, but you are a God that delights in introducing himself to his people. If there's someone in this room, maybe they're not yet a believer, not yet a Christian. God, thank you for bringing them here. Might today be the day they consider that this is not just some coincidence. This is not just some ritual of a, uh, of a superstitious people. This is something that you have been doing for centuries to introduce us to the way you save us. Might today be the first day they begin to consider the possibility you've not abandoned them, but there is a God who is real and has come to be with us and for us. Maybe for the rest of us, this is just a story we've maybe become so accustomed to that it becomes meaningless. Maybe it's a story that is really for us just about nostalgia and a longing for days gone by. Might even now we be renewed in our faith and hope 
that we would wait expectantly, knowing that you are going to do abundantly above and beyond what we could ask or imagine. And this season is just a glimpse. It's just a chapter. Might we turn from the temptation to think that you are a God that we can control, but instead you have come while we were dead in our trespasses. You have sent your Son to be just like us so that we would, He would be able to sympathize with us. Might we see Him as He truly is, as the Savior King who has been sent to destroy and put to death our greatest enemy. Allow us to respond in faith and obedience in Jesus' name. Amen.